Welcome to Island Baptist Church's Bible study in the parables of Luke, lesson one. So, uh, the parables, uh, just by way of introduction, parables are fabulous works of art. Uh, no better storyteller than Jesus. And that's what the parables are. Uh, stories told by Jesus to communicate, uh, well, as someone put it this way, uh, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Uh, taking a common situation and making a very powerful spiritual point, and that is what these parables are. Uh, central theme is always, mark it, always the king and his kingdom, and if we deviate from that, we've missed the interpretation. It's always so that you can understand who the king is and what his kingdom's going to be like, and that's always the message. And there's different messages. There's so many facets, of course, of both of those things uh, that there's you know, effectively an endless supply of the needs for understanding that. So... Again, like I said before, common sense is critical, uh, and, and it is, as far as the stories are concerned here, all of us here lack common sense, because it was a Middle Eastern man, Jesus, speaking to Middle Eastern people, Jewish people, about Middle Eastern things, and our tendency, and we can't help it, is to interpret from our culture and from our understanding and from the way we do things and from the way we would interpret it and, and comprehend it. And it's not that we come to conclusions that are wrong, it's just that we miss a lot of times the richness of what's really being conveyed here. And there's, there's a force being carried here that uh, we can't get until we have immersed ourselves into this culture and understand how they think. So here, here's, here's a rule of thumb for all interpreting scripture. Uh, but especially in these, in these uh, parables. If our interpretation, listen, must make sense, must have made sense to the original hearers, or else we're off. You, you understand? So the original hearers were Middle Eastern people standing there. In the first century Middle Eastern people, we're not talking about current Middle Eastern people. They don't have common sense either. They, they in some ways have it better than we do because there's some of these things that are still in their culture. But, but uh, most of it, we've all been westernized, uh, if you will, and we all here think in West, like Western people, even though you may have culture from somewhere else. Uh, we all think and act, and, and our basic uh, premise and, and common sense is based upon Western culture. These are not Western people. These are Eastern people. And uh, these are people that um, you don't wear your shoes into their house. Anybody ever raised that way? Mom wouldn't let you wear your shoes, of course, muddy shoes. Uh, I was in seminary in Fort Worth, and um, we had people from all different cultures there who were uh, going to seminary. And I also worked for the seminary, and uh, the crew I worked for did a number of things, including moving furniture. They would, they would rent seminary housing, and they would even rent seminary furniture. You think about a couple from Korea coming over, for instance. I mean, they're, they're going to have no furniture with them coming over going to school. And so the seminary would provide housing, would provide um, uh, furniture for them, and I was one of the guys in the crew that would move the furniture for them. We always knew, well, two reasons why we knew we were in an oriental house. First of all, you walk up there and it smells like stir-fry. Pretty good. <laughs> Secondly, there's about a hundred pairs of shoes on the outside of the door. Like all their shoes are outside. They don't go inside with their shoes. Well, this Bible culture is Eastern culture. They don't do things the way you do. They ate on the floor like Easterners, like Japanese and Chinese. They wrote their language with pictograph type of things. You ever looked at Hebrew? It's a lot more similar to Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Korean than it is to English. 
They wrote from right to left. They wrote from back for us, back to front of books. They were, they're just not, they're not like us, okay? They're not Westerners, um, which is neither good nor bad, but it's just so, so that you know, there is, some, there is some gaps here between us. And especially if we go back, uh, to, you know, 20 centuries uh, back, which is what we're looking at here, first century. So uh, the parable that we have here in Luke 15 is a, is a parable about the Father's heart. And the next parable we're going to look at next, next uh, Tuesday is going to be about the afterlife. And there are going to be notes, by the way. We're going to be publishing these notes. going to be handing you the whole pack of notes at the end of our study. There's going to be a total of eight of these studies. Uh, also, if you would like uh, notes from Sunday morning or uh, any other time, you can, you can actually send ahead of time, if you would like those notes, or if you were here on a Sunday and didn't get those notes or whatever, you want a previous set of notes, you can, you can email Chuck. Chuck! Chuck, what's your email? IT admin. Okay. I, the letter I, T, admin, A D M I N, at islandbaptist.org. You can, that's Chuck, and you can text or email Chuck and just say, I would like to have the notes from this Sunday or last Sunday or whatever. Chuck will send them to you. So, just a, uh, another way to get your hands on stuff like that. So, so back to this whole thing. Parables about the Father's heart. Would you consider the Father's heart, the heart of the Father, the understanding of that to be important? Since, he, since he's the sovereign of the universe and since he holds heaven and hell in his hands, don't you think it's important for us to understand how he thinks? I mean, truly who he is? Not, not an assumption, not even we all vote together and say this is the way God is. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in who he really is. And what we have here is three parables in which Jesus is going to be communicating to us the heart of the Father, uh, a heart, by the way, that the people of this culture did not know. And their biggest problem was, is that they thought they did. The biggest problem you and I have, one of the biggest problems we have is, that, uh, is the stuff we think we already know. In many cases, that's our biggest problem. I've got that figured out. I've got that worked out. And that's where you're in danger, because you tend to have pride in those areas, and uh, pride can lead to tremendous uh, issues. So, so would you consider the heart of the Father towards sinners an important thing to know? Since you happen to be a sinner? I would say that is the supreme thing of supreme importance for us to know. So what he's going to give us here is three classes of sinners that God saves. That's these three parables. So three classes of sinners that God saves. And there's a fourth class of sinner that God does not save in the last parable, and the reason why he does not save them because they cannot be saved. People that cannot be saved? Yes, that's exactly right. People who are unwilling to repent. That, that puts a person outside of the reach of God because God will not cross. He will not cross their uh, ability to choose. He's given us the ability to choose, and if we don't choose him, that's it. So we're going to be considering these four classes of sinners, three classes of sinners that God saves, and a fourth class that cannot be saved, because they think God owes them salvation, unfortunately. And so they will not repent, they will not humble themselves to God's salvation and God's means of, of rescuing us. And so, one, again, one sure thing to keep you from being saved is to think you already are. I'm not trying to undermine your... I wrote a book, did I say, tell you that? <laughs> Can the saved be lost? It is so important that we know that we are saved. But the, the one sure thing to keep you from being saved is to not be saved, but to think that you are. That is the culture that Jesus is speaking to here. 
That is the Pharisaical uh, Sanhedrin culture that has been promoted among the Jews. Because we're Jewish, we're in. And it doesn't matter what we do, because the blood of Abraham runs through our veins, we're in. And so that was their culture and theology, and they thought they were saved, and it pushed them further away from the reaching hands of the Savior. So, so let's, let's get into this, and we need to set, first of all, our, our uh, situation. And beginning in verses 1 and 2, it says, And then all the tax gatherers, this is, this is what precipitates these three stories. These three stories are, are our trilogy. They were all spoken at one time. They're all to be taken together because they're all communicating the same message. Three different angles, if you will, of the heart of the Father and who he saves and, unfortunately, who he does not. So now all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near him, listening to him, that'd be Jesus. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What does that tell you about these guys? Number one, they don't think they're sinners. Number one, that's a huge problem. That's an insurmountable problem. That, that person, if a person continues in that condition, they will remain in this life thinking they're not sinners, and they will remain in the next life knowing forever that they were. And it won't be good. It won't be good. It's so important that the law of God work its work in tilling the soil of our hearts and bring us the understanding that we are sinners. It's a place of repentance. It's a place of recognition. And we're going to have three that recognize that and one that does not here in these stories. So, so again, let me underscore this. There's going to be people in heaven that are going to shock you. You would have not thought they were going to be there. And there are going to be people in hell that are going to shock you you would have not thought we're going to be there. How do we know that? Because we got multiple examples of people who got it wrong here in the scriptures, and I'm thinking that we're not any better than them. I'm just thinking we're not. That's why God left us these scriptures, so to tell us not about those bad people over there, but the bad people that are in here, in the way we, at least in the way we think. No one there thought the Pharisees would have missed heaven, especially not the Pharisees. And no one thought that these tax collectors and sinners were going to make it to heaven either, and they were wrong on both counts. And Jesus is about to turn their whole thinking on, on its ear in these uh, three parables. And so, um, so here, here's the question again. Do you know the Father's heart? Here's what you need to know about the Father. He loves sinners. And he's hunting them. God's a hunter. He's after them. Seeking them. Wants them. Doesn't want them to get what they deserved. Everything that he does and all that he's accomplished through his son is a complete demonstration of that. And it's going to be very well demonstrated if we pay attention to what these parables teach us here. He's watching for them. He longs for them. Uh, we know that because, like I said, of what Jesus teaches us here in these parables. So we start off with the average sinner, which is my designation. I don't know if this is average. In fact, I think probably average is the, is the boy who runs away with his father's goods. Uh, but, but I'm just going to say average for the, for the sake of uh, giving it a title. They're like sheep. Notice what it says in verse 3. And he told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one who was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And here, here's Jesus' commentary on the story. I tell you that in the same way, not a, 
Not a sort of kind of way, but in the exact same way. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So wow, what, a, what, a, what an incredible introduction to this. This is the first of two, I would call, of course you would, stories that Jesus presents to them. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, losing one, would not leave the 99? And the answer, the whole crowd nods their heads. Of course you would. Of course you would. Now see, in our culture, or at least the way I think, I'm thinking 99 is, a, is still an A. So is 98, 97. Even 90 is still an A in many of colleges, right? So if I lose 10, I'm not that great of a shepherd, apparently. If, even if I lose 10, I still make an A. I'm still pass, I mean, that's way better than passing. I'm making an A. So we don't think like that. And, and plus, this isn't a score. They're, they're only 100% is, a, is an acceptable score in this culture because their sheep were their lives. These were their pets. These were their family. They lived with these animals. They weren't something to raise and slaughter. They were something to raise and they got income off of. Some of these sheep they would have had for years, in some cases decades. And so, of course, if one of those leaves, you're going to leave the 99 some secure place and you're going to go find the one. And when you do, by the way, which most likely if the sheep's been gone very long and if you find it alive, it's a cause for celebration. Sheep don't live by themselves very long. They're dead. Something kills them or they kill themselves. They get themselves in some, some bad way that you find it healthy, happy, and alive is a, a source of rejoicing. Everyone sitting in this room that Jesus is speaking to would have been nodding their heads saying, of course we would do that. What they don't know, or what he communicates to them, is that's exactly the way God feels about us. The, the average sinner out there who is he knows a little bit, but not enough, and he's just dumb enough to get himself in a really bad state and get himself way over there lost in, in his sin. And, and what, is the, what does the parable tell us about the heart of the Father for that kind of sinner? He loves them. He searches for them. He doesn't quit. And, and, and let's, let's, let's have a commentary also on the, on the 99 who need no repentance. Do you, have you ever met a person who needs no repentance? There is no such thing. There is no such thing. He's just accommodating to their typical, we need no repentance. We're the sons of Abraham. We're Pharisees. It's these people who need repentance, and they did. They saw themselves as needing no repentance. They're the older son. We're going to be getting to their, their part here. But there is no such thing as a person who needs no repentance. So there are, there are only two classes of sinners, and you can categorize them any way you want to, multiple ways. But there, here's one classification. There are two classes of sinners. One group of sinners that causes God to rejoice and another group that will not allow him to. And all because of their choices. All sinners. One that allow themselves to be found through repentance and the other ones who do not. And that's, you've got to decide which class you want to be in. Some that allow God to rejoice and some that will keep him from rejoicing. So first of all, we have this, this uh, average sinner. Then we have the mindless sinner here in verse 8. Uh, like, like a coin. Coin is mindless. How does this coin get lost? Through the negligence of someone else. You might put a child in this category. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of... Uh, by the way, all three of these categories, both the lost coin, the lost son, and the lost sheep, are all categories that we've all been in. We're all, we've all been one of these. But we may have majored on one or the other 
or, or, or but we've been through all these classes, so we can't really categorize any particular group of people per se. But it just types, types of sinners. Again, this is another of course you would story. And the story is effectively the woman loses a coin and searches for it. Of course she would. Of course. Verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins, loses one? This is like a dowry that she had. These coins would have been worth more than ten days' wages apiece. No way to recover them for her. She has to find it. Of course she would search for it. Does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. She would have been absolutely a basket case until she found it. Can't believe she was so negligent as to lose it or whatever happened to her cause to lose it. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. Of course she would. In the same way, here's now the heart of the Father that you didn't know, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and maybe to some of us. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Notice, not the angels rejoicing, but in the presence of the angels. They're, they're an audience to who's, who's rejoicing here. God is. I don't know if you have a picture of if, if, if your God is a God who sings and dances over sinners. If that's not your God, you've got the wrong one. You've got the wrong one. He's going to make a statement here, Jesus is, at the last parable, at the end of the last parable, that I would submit to you is one of the most amazing statements in the whole Bible. We're going to get to that. I'll keep, keep you awake until then. Or maybe you're, you can punch, they can punch you and say, hey, here it is. <laughs> He's about to get to it six hours later. So of course she would. I mean, understand the, the, the culture. She's going to hunt for this coin. Of course she would. Uh, let, let me ask you something. Um, why are we valuable? If I ask you a question, are people valuable? What would be your answer? Of course they are. Why? Well, let, me, let me shift it for you. The, the, you got a dollar bill, anybody? Maybe a 20? Maybe a 100? Pull out the dollar bill and the $100 bill and tell me why one's more valuable than the other. Well, they're made out of the same stuff, same ink, different numbers. Why, why does that make it valuable? Because we have, we have placed value on it. That, it isn't actually valuable. I mean, who says it is? Just because we all vote that it is. I mean, really, gold, why is gold valuable? Because we say that it is. Why, why, why can't I pick up a rock and say it's valuable? If we could get you all to vote together, we could turn rocks into being valuable. Gold wouldn't be. Why, why is it valuable? Because we assign value to it. It has no intrinsic value. Why are humans valuable? Because God has assigned a value to us. That's why. There is, listen carefully, because we're sinners, there is no intrinsic value in us. There is no intrinsic value. We are valuable because God says so and he found the value within himself. The reason why we're valued and the reason why we're going to heaven or we have the option to go to heaven is because God has decided such. There is no other reason. There is no intrinsic value in us. We offer nothing to God. God gains nothing by getting us. He doesn't have a need that we are supplying. So there is no intrinsic value in us. It is assigned value. It's a sign. It's value. I mean, if God says it's valuable, then it is. And if God says it isn't, then you can be sure it's not. 
So, so here we have this assigned value that God gives to the, the, the lost person, and we can see here the heart of the Father. Why, why does he search for him? Because he determines that that's valuable to him, and he's not going to stop until he finds it. And when he finds it, he's going to rejoice. And again, as, as Jesus is trying to communicate to us, we must understand the Father to the point where we understand, of course he would do this. Of course he would. If you know the heart of the Father, then you know that he would do this. This is the way he acts. But do you know him, you see? Pharisees thought they did. They were quite wrong. And then we get to the final story. The sinner who knows better and does it anyway. Anybody here like that? I know I was never like that. I mean, he, every time I knew the right thing to do, I did it. So I want to see the hands of those who are not like me because I need y'all to go over here. Like I said, you, you were a mindless sinner and you were an average sinner, but I think most, most of us have been more than anything the, the rebellious sinner. And we could argue to a degree that the, the first two aren't really rebels because they really didn't know. You gotta kinda have to know what you're doing in order to rebel, and, and again, all sinners are rebels to be sure, but, but uh, these are sort of the uninformed sinners, if you will. Um, but but this, this, this last group here is, is certainly a, an informed sinner in every sense of the term. Uh, the first two were, of course you would, stories. Of course you would leave 99 sheep and go after the one. Like I said, this is cultural for them. In, in our culture, like I said, a 99 is a passing grade. That's a great grade. Too bad for that sheep. Yeah, I'm going to keep my nine. You know, a bird in hand's worth two in the bush. That's Western culture. That's the way we think. So, ah, dumb old sheep. I didn't like her anyway. You still got nine coins. That's still a 90. Why worry about that 10th one? You know, it's not that big of a deal, uh, at least seemingly in our culture. But, but the, the first two were, of course you would stories, and this last one, and you need to underscore this, is a, is a course you wouldn't stories. Of course you wouldn't do this. Of course a son would never do this. Of course the father would never respond this way. You have to understand that as, as soon as he launches into this story, all mouths are dropped. Everybody's just like, the previous two stories, everybody's nodding their head. Oh, that's right, amen, that's, what it, that's the way you ought to do that. As soon as he launches in this story, everybody's like, uh-uh, no, no way. And, and much more so than probably you understand. Again, we don't fully comprehend this because we don't fully understand their culture, and we're gonna get into why that is so. But first of all, this is really a story about a man who had two sons. I know we title it the prodigal son. It's not really about him, guys. Remember the beginning of our chapter, it's about the Father, the heart that you don't know. That's who it's about. Don't deviate from that. It's important. I mean, really, do we really need to know more about the prodigal son? Have we not all been prodigals? We're well informed about that. The lost coin, I've been one of those. The lost sheep, I've been, a, been that a many a time. Prodigal son, yep. No, I can write a book on all those. That's my own personal experience. But the Father is the one we don't know, guys. He is the one we need to understand. The man who had two sons, that man is the one you need to know. And you need to watch carefully what he does because this is our eternal father. This is the way he thinks. This is his heart. This is the way he acts. Here's, I, I would suggest to you, the real title of, of, the, of the parable is what you have there in verse 11. A certain man who had two sons. A certain man, speaking of God the Father 
who had two sons. And here's the, of course you wouldn't, part of the story, first part, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, two sons, the younger says to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Now, the whole Jewish contingent sitting there in front of Jesus would have been shaking their head, said, no, he didn't. That is completely antithetical to their culture. A son would never do this. Never. It, it, this, is a, this is a shame and uh, honor culture. We used to have a shame and honor culture, and we've kind of lost both of those. We have no honor and we have no shame. You could kind of count on a person to not do certain things and to do certain things because they would be ashamed otherwise or it would be dishonorable or it's the honorable thing to do. Not only do you not hear people say that anymore, even if they said it, they would not mean it because it just, with the exception of this group, I'm certain. Everybody in this room accepted, maybe with also myself. But our culture that we live in anymore is not, they don't care what shameful is. It doesn't bother them a bit. They don't care what honorable is. They don't move off of that. There were certain things I would suggest to you if World War II happened again. I know we're in a World War III situation seemingly out there. If World War II happened again, I'm afraid that so many things, so many things that were done in, in that situation because of the men and women, because they were ashamed of certain things and they would not do anything to break the honor of other things, that if the same situation came about, we'd be a German culture over here. We wouldn't, couldn't fight them because we are morally bankrupt. We just don't have it anymore. There's nothing to draw on. There's no, no real, aren't you ashamed of that? Nope. Wouldn't you do that because it's an honorable thing? Nope. Well, take, take anything that we've ever had in this culture as far as shame and honor and multiply it times 100 and you've got the Middle Eastern culture of the first century. Shame and honor are everything for them. They're clannish, which means you live in a community basically with people who you're all related to. And, and the, 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 the ruler of the community, unspoken or spoken, is a father figure like an Abraham or an Isaac or a Jacob. And everything is circled around this one patriarch. And by the way, matriarchs were also, also honored in a similar way. The, these these patriarch, matriarchal situation, the shame and honor was based upon the shame and, or honor that you brought to them. And so you would do or would not do certain things because it either brought shame or honor to, to them and, and to your culture. So, so let, let me just say this to say, a son would never ask for his inheritance. That's effectively saying, I wish you were dead. I need my money. Now in our culture, it's kind of like, I've heard that one before. We got a lot of rebels. In this culture, it did not happen. And if it ever did, which I would suggest to you, there was, a, there was definitely a never in that. But if it ever did, I can promise you the father would never capitulate. There was no free will in the shame, honor culture. The son did not have, oh, he can ask for his stuff, but he ain't getting it. There is no way the father's going to stoop to allowing this son to per perpetrate this type of shame upon the family, upon the community, upon the clan, and upon the culture by allowing him to actually follow through with his decisions. You ask for all this stuff, and yeah, you're going to be in trouble for the rest of your life, but you ain't getting a cent. Yet again, of course he would, or he wouldn't give him this stuff. 
So, so from the very get-go, the fact that the son asks for it and that the father agrees to it, the whole group of people have their mouths going, oh, I can't believe that would never happen. It would never happen. So from the get-go, we have this, of course you wouldn't scenario taking place here. Again, underscores the issue of how God operates. Uh, he allows us to have a choice. Some people call that free will. He allows us to have a choice, and he allows us to experience the consequences of those choices. Why was there a, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? Good and God had kept it out of there. Isn't God calling all the shots? Yep. But he put it in there. Why? Because love is only love if it is a decision. If I cannot make a decision, then it really isn't love. I'm sort of just a robot because I can only choose one thing. But if I can choose either good or evil, then to choose good... Well, then that really is love, you see. That really is respect. And so this father is allowing the son to actually have a cho choice and follow through with the consequences. You want me to liquidate your part? Okay. So the, the son has communicated to the father, I hate you, I wish you were dead. And the son has communicated to the son, I will let you follow the natural direction of whatever consequences you have chosen. So here we go. Of course he wouldn't do this. Of course you wouldn't have free will and choice in this culture. You did not. Even if you tried to exercise it, the Father wouldn't give it to you. And the whole culture would say, yay, Dad, you stick to your guns. So this story is way outside of the margins for anyone listening to it. And again, just underscores, again, not, not a right or a wrong, but the way God is. God respects our no as well as our yes. And there are a lot of rebels out there, I don't know if you've noticed, who are, have jobs and eating food and have good health and breathing God's air and at the same time shaking their fist at heaven. You notice that? Isn't, God's supplying their rebellion, isn't he? He could, he could stop it, couldn't he? He's given them a choice and he's allowed them to experience the consequences, the, the natural uh, flow of where that choice is going to take them. He, he does that. He really does. So, so verse 13, liquidation. Not many days later. So like, what, what does the father have, by the way? This culture has no cash. The father doesn't hand him $100,000. The father hands him $100,000 worth of stuff. Servants, sheep, goats, oxen, goldfish, cats, chickens, land, he liquidates this in a very, very quickly. So, does, so tell me, if I, if I get something and I'm in a hurry to get rid of it, do I get my best price or do I get something devalued? Yeah. I mean, not likely to get this. If you really want to dump it, you're going to have to lower your price. He dumps it. So what has he done? He has entered into a shame level that this is beyond the cultural ability to even accept. First of all, just asking for the stuff. Secondly, that he has liquidated it so quickly so that he can move off to some, some other place. That what, what he's done, so, so he got what, what the father had. Where did his father get it from? From his dad and mom. And where did that one get it from? Dad and mom. 
But this is a family heritage that's been passed down, and it's an honor and shame culture, and you honor this hard work that your ancestors have done, and you don't bring shame on that, and you do your best to say, thank you for the way that you've lived, and I'm going to try not to, as long as it's my, in my possession, to not mess it up so I can pass it on to, to my heirs and your heirs, speaking to your ancestors. And so that this, you're locked into this, and you're not, you're not upset about this. This is the way you are. This is the way things are done, and so you don't let go of this the fact that he liquidates it at a devalued rate says i don't respect anything that they did i don't respect anything that you did i don't respect any of the norms of this culture i don't respect any of the decisions of this clan or any of the rules wow that did not happen that did not happen under any circumstances he devalues it that was passed down to him and he's fully aware of what he's doing He's completely against the rules, and then he liquidates and moves as far away from anything that are like the rules as he possibly can to a foreign country. He doesn't say where, it just says very far. He just liquidates and moves. And uh, wow. Ever known a person like that? Just absolutely turns their back on everything that's right? Ever been a person like that? Mm-hmm. Yep. So how'd you get here? Because you have a father that loves you. So you need to understand, we, the righteous people, which I guess, just me. <laughs> us righteous people who have always done it right and never made a mistake, just, just me, I know, have a real problem with people like this. Because I don't want them in heaven. Because I think, I've been good all my life, and that knuckleheads like this should never have a chance to come back. They, they've done it. They've burned it. They've burned the bridges. They, they've, they've, they've destroyed everything. And my heart, my human center heart, says, that's it. They've gone too far. That is not, hear me carefully, that is not the heart of the Father. That is not. And if you have a problem with the Father-loving sinners, you've got a real problem. You really do. The son, the older son has a problem with it. And um, he never reconciles with the father. And that's an eternal issue. It really is. Again, we tend to have mercy on the lost, the first two lost cases, the mindless sinner and the ignorant sinner. But we full, with the one who's fully aware and yet rebellious, uh, we hope he gets what he deserves, don't we? There's a part of us that says, oh, let's get him. The whole culture would have been that way. The whole society would have been that way. He's gone off and squandered his father's goods. He's going to get what he deserves, and we're not going to cry a tear over it. It's the way it was. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand God loves sinners, even the ones who do shameful things and who shame God in the process. He loves them. He loves them. Well, I don't really think he should. Well, it ain't your heaven. It's not your eternal life. It's all his. Learn to think like him. Learn to know him. Rabbi Proverbs that says this, when the Israelites are reduced to carob pods, then they repent. That's where this boy's headed. Eating pods from a carob bush. Verse 14. So, there, so the son, not many days later, gathered everything, went to a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered everything. That word squandered is where we get the word prodigal from. It literally means to waste Prodigal means to waste it. You had it, 
It was at your feet, you had the opportunity, and you wasted it. Never known or been one of those people. Now, when he had spent everything, again, prodigaled, he prodigaled it. A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need, and he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. Notice there's no offer of pay here because he wasn't paying him. You can feed the swine, and whatever you can make do with out there, I'll let you do it. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him, including this landowner. This guy was not paying him anything. There's no payment here. He's completely shamed. He's defiled himself. He's become completely unredeemable in the eyes of his culture. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, you might want to underline that. What is repentance? That's what it is. That's what it is. A sinner repents, listen, doesn't change anything. A sinner can't stop sinning. They cannot. A saved person can. Now, there's a different repentance for a saved person. And by the way, come this Sunday, we're going to talk more about repentance and what, what, what that is. And John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance, and Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And, you know, God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to what? Repentance. What does that mean? Well, understand, a sinner can't repent of anything. I mean, I don't, and change anything. This boy can come to his senses, but he can't fill his stomach. He can't change his status, and he can't make his father forgive him, and he can't reinstitute himself into this culture. He's burned all those bridges. There is no going back for him. All he can do is come to his senses about the things that he's done. That is a sinner's repentance. That's what it is. And by the way, that's a grace from God. In fact, it, says, it tells us in, in, in 2 Timothy, pray for the person who opposes you that God may grant them repentance. It's so critical. Because apart from repentance, listen, there is no salvation. person has to say, I'm washed up, I need a Savior, else they can't be saved. He's not just coming down and forcing people into heaven. He's just not. He's, he's respecting their yes and their no. Even in tears, he is. So, so he comes to his senses, and this is a sinner's repentance, and there's, uh, uh, he's, he's, not, uh, he's not like the previous two who had a no real sense of, of what, not to say there isn't repentance involved there, involved there, but there certainly is here. He knew what he was doing. He did wrong. He's gotten himself into a dark place. He now realizes that he has. He knows he can't change his circumstances, and so he's, he's repented himself of it. I was so wrong, it was so stupid, I've messed up, I've, I've, I've destroyed everything, and I can't fix it, and that's the place where God reaches down and saves the sinner. He did it with the full knowledge of the senses, and he did it willingly. Watch what it says here in Romans. This, by the way, this is an explanation for the culture you're, you're living in, and you're scratching your head why there's so many stupid people out there. Here's why. For even though they knew God, notice they knew this boy knew. He knew the culture. He knew his father. He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. He knew what brought honor. He knew what brought shame. And he crossed all those lines. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And watch it carefully. Their foolish heart was darkened. That's a consequence. You live in a dark world today. You look at people out there and say, why can't they see that this is wrong and that this is right? And I'm telling you, this tells you why. They can't see it because they can't see it. They can't. 
And, and I know you think, well, if we just had an intelligent conversation with some of these people, they've lost their intelligence because they've turned their back on God who they already knew. The, the things that are known about God are ever into all of us, and they've turned their back on those things. It leads to a foolish situation and a heart that's darkening, and they start calling themselves wise, even though they become even more foolish. And, of course, the, you know the rest of the story there in first, uh, first chapter of Romans. So how do you get out of this? Only by the grace of God. Like I said, some of you and me were, were some of these. How did you come out of it? Because God graciously granted you repentance. In his kindness, you came to your senses. And of course, now that repentance can't save you. There is nothing that you bring to the table that saves you. It is the communication. It's, it, it becomes the bridge that God can cross to save you. But it doesn't save you. It just brings you to the place to say, I'm washed up. I'm I, have, I was so stupid. I, I've, I have gotten myself in a dark place, and I can't turn the light on anymore. I can't fix it. This boy couldn't fix it, and so all he can do is come to his senses and, and throw himself on the mercy of the Father. And like I said, that's where sinners are saved. That's where they are. And a person unwilling to, to humble themselves, unwilling to say that I've, I've messed up, is a person who cannot be saved. They cannot. It's the unpardonable sin. You can't cross, God will not cross that. He will not, he will not go against their will. So, he, he, so verse, verse 17 and we'll, in the first part of 20, his only chance of living is what he does here. The only chance he has is survival. He's either, he's either facing death or he's going to have to humble himself extremely. He says, but when he came to his senses and said, how many of my father's hired men? Notice not slaves, there's a difference. We're going to talk about that. Hired men have more than enough bread. And I'm dying here. And that would have been a very odd, odd situation for hired men to actually have enough, more than enough. Usually all they had was a day to day. They literally ate day to day. They worked day to day. And again, we'll talk about that. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. Again, this is not some formula that you say and that, that renders salvation. The salvation is totally the decision of the father. Reinstatement is totally the decision of the Father. Reconciliation is totally the decision of the Father. The Son can, all, all He can do is just say, I'm, I'm worthless, I know that I am, please forgive me. But He can't make the Father do anything. No one wanted to be called your son, maybe one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his Father, and then we'll stop right there because we, we need to talk about something here, first of all. His only chance of living, his hope is to be a hired laborer of his Father's. The hired laborer lived from day to day. It was a move up to be a slave. We think slavery is bad, and it was in our culture, but a hired man in this culture was below a slave because a slave knew where they were going to sleep and knew what they were going to eat every single day. A hired man did not. If he got hired, he ate. If he did not get hired, he did not eat. So what he says about these, though, he says, these hired men of my father have more than enough. So that tells you that, the, that, again, the heart of the Father here is that even the, the least among them have a, a blessing, have an, have an abundance. The Son recognizes this. How could I be so stupid? Exactly. How could I be so foolish? Exactly. Finally, the sinner has repented. Finally, he says, I'm washed up. I'm no good. I've, I've burned it. I've done it. I can't fix it. Finally, finally. How long does it take for that to happen? I wish I knew. This is the only way that he can gain respect. So understand the culture. 
He's headed back to his father. He's also headed back to his town and to his people of whom he's related to most. He will not be welcomed. In this culture, again, we've already crossed a whole bunch of, of course you wouldn't bury us. Of course he would never ask for this. Of course the father would never allow him to do this and give him the, the portion that belongs to him. Of course he wouldn't liquidate it and move off to some other country. And if he ever did, if it ever got to those of course you wouldn't things, he would never, of course he would never come back. But he's doing it because he has no other options. So if, that ever, if we ever got to this point, of course he wouldn't be accepted back. Of course he wouldn't. If it ever got to this point, he would be allowed back into town, but he would never move back in with his father. He would be kept in the town as the town whipping boy. And the only way that he would gain, the, the town and the father would gain honor is by using him as an example for everyone else saying, don't be like him. And this is his only hope. This is the, the most he could ever rise to in this culture from this time until his death because of what he's done. Understand, this is the culture. This is the way that it works. This, this is the system that, that he's in. Um, uh, don't turn out like him, and you would never see the face of the father. Remember in, in Samuel, uh, um, Absalom uh, kills his brother because his brother rapes his half-sister, full sister to Absalom, and then Absalom has his brother killed. Absalom runs off to a foreign country. Uh, Joab begs uh, uh, David over and over, please allow your son to come back. What was David's answer? No, that's the culture. That's the culture. Finally, Joab talks David into it. He allows Absalom back into Jerusalem, but notice what it says. What does it say? Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. That's the culture. He would never be accepted back. He's going to be a whipping boy for the rest of his life. He turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. You know the story, of course. King was forced into that. Uh, by this son who was still in complete rebellion even though he'd gotten to come home. Um, but, but that's the culture. So that's the same thing that's happening here. This boy's coming back. He's never going to see the face of the father. Never going to be reconciled to him. That's out of the question. That, that bridge is burned. It's not going to be rebuilt. He's going to be a whipping boy in the culture. He's going to be the, don't be like him. All the parents are going to use him. See this, see Johnny? See that boy over there? See what happened to him? Don't make the same mistakes. The culture is going to regain their honor and respect by making sure that he's kept as low as he possibly can. Does it make sense? Good. I guess, I guess it does to you. <laughs> he would never be redeemed because society would not allow him to be redeemed. Uh, the only way the society could redeem its honor is to make sure that he stays unredeemed. Got it? So what happens next is the final, of course, it would never happen. Of course it would never happen that he would be reconciled with the Father, especially in the way that it takes place here. Look at the remainder of verse 20. He got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Okay. Felt compassion for him. Yeah, I think David felt compassion for Absalom. But here's what would, of course, never happen ran and embraced him and kissed him. That would never happen in this culture. He's had a, 
agape, mouth agape up until this point. They got, big, they got their mouth as wide as they've ever had it open. The father would never do this. Patriarchs, listen to me, and matriarchs never ran. Here's why. First of all, it's disrespectful. Because if I'm a patriarch or a matriarch, I have servants that run from me. I have children that run from me. That's part of the reason why I've got them, because I don't have to run anywhere. Just wait. By the way, I love that. I think that's awesome. <laughs> but, but and, and so number one, just because it's a disrespectful thing to the position that you hold as a patriarch or matriarch, it's also extremely disrespectful, because in order to run, you had to take your long flowing robes, which they all wore, and they still wear over there in the more traditional areas, Long flowing robes that reach to the ground, and you have to tuck them up into your belt. Anybody wearing, none of you men here, probably, but you ladies ever wore a long dress? You ever stepped on it? What happens? You don't move fast than that. You move fast, you're going to move fastly to the ground, aren't you? So he'd have to tuck it into his belt, which meant that his, you would see his knees and his legs. That did not happen in this culture. Skin is a big no-no. It's not just the Muslims today who making the women wear those burqas where you see, that's a very old traditional thing. That's not just Muslim. That's Middle Eastern. That's Eastern culture. Skin is a big no-no for them. It has always been, it was incorporated into the Muslim traditions, but Muslim is a relatively re recent religion. It was part of their culture for thousand years prior to that, more than a thousand years prior to that. That you would ever, you would never, ever see your father's or your mother's legs, your entire life, ever. So for him to run out there, man, he runs through the middle of the town and everybody's like, I just saw brother so-and-so's legs. The whole world's coming to an end. The whole world is coming to an end. I thought we had reached the pinnacle of all the of course you wouldn'ts and we have now reached the pinnacle. It is now, the world is coming to an end, it's all over because I just saw his knees. They'd be white as a ghost. They'd not seen the sun. Dark face and white legs. And that's the way the Arabs are today, by the way. You know, you don't, they don't, the skin does not show under any circumstances. So, so him doing all this, most importantly, is, so I've got a boy coming into town who is bearing all of his shame, and rightfully so. He's earned it. He's broken all the berries. He's burned all the bridges. He's going to be the shame and the whipping post for, for us for the rest of the time. And that's the way our culture is going to gain back its honor for the shame that he's brought on us. Now we've had a total wrench throw in the process. And here's the wrench. Brother so-and-so has come through the town showing his knees. Which that means, and embrace the son. That means that no longer is the son the whipping post. Guess who is now? The father has taken all the shame of the son upon himself because of what he's done. The father has lost everything status-wise, respect-wise in this culture. He has, he has laid it down on the altar of accepting his son. And so either I can keep my honor and my son stays in the shame, or I can take the shame and my son gets restored to a place of honor. That's the heart of the father. That's the decision that God is making when he saves you is that he is taking upon himself all the stuff that you've done. That's not a new story, is it? That's not a new story. It shouldn't be for you. Here, Hebrews 12, too, speaking of shame, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the what? Whose shame? Whose shame? I mean, yeah, he hung up there naked and stuff. I understand that. But that's not anything close to the shame he was bearing for you and me. Despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice it didn't change his status. It just changed people's opinion about him. So same, same is true here. Now, so this father runs out and, and everybody sees brother so-and-so's knees. Has he lost any land? Any servants? Any money? Any houses? No. He's still worth millions. The whole society says, we don't like him anymore. Guess what? He still owns everything. Likewise, our society, our world looks at God and says, how could he forgive someone like this? How, how could he do something like this? A lot of people are ashamed of God. They're ashamed. The gospel is a shameful thing that the God of heaven would dishonor himself in such a way that he would hang on a cross on behalf of us. Some people, that's their reaction. It wasn't my reaction. My reaction was, you know, again, by God's grace, I had a heart of repentance that says I'm, I'm not worthy of this. And so any offer of, of grace from him is, is, was acceptable to me. There's a lot of people who are just like, a, God, a real God wouldn't do that. Real God is stuffy and sits up in heaven and is, you know, you know, looking to throw lightning bolts on people who don't follow the things according to Hoyle out there. And, and uh, that's the real God they've decided in their head. That's who they don't know his heart, do they? They don't know him. That's the problem. That's a big problem. It's an eternal problem. The father would have lost his standing, but he would have lost absolutely nothing. You know, people can set, set up there and say all, all they want to about how, it's, you know, how they don't like God because of the way God does things. Guess what? He's still the sovereign of the universe. He still owns your soul. So you better find a way to get over that. Super quick. Father doesn't care about the shame. That's the way the Bible reads. The heart of the parable is the heart of the Father. Here's the verbs. Felt, compassion, ran, embraced, kissed. Unconditional love that he demonstrates here. He's reinstated as a full son based upon what? Based upon the father's grace and the son's repentance. That's the way things work. You've got to have a, you know, God has full of grace. God, God's not willing that any should, 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 uh, should uh, yeah. perish. Couldn't come up with it. But all should come to what? Repentance, you see. Because that allows him to do something because of the standards he's placed upon himself. If a person's not willing, I won't force myself on them. But if they repent, if they come to the, the, their senses about who they really are, I will, I will graciously forgive them and accept them. The beauty of the gospel, right? So, so he accepts them. It says, and the son came to him and said, Father, I've sinned against heaven. He's going to say what he's going to say, and I appreciate that. And in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and the father's already, but, but he's already been reconciled to the father. There's not a need to say this stuff. He doesn't have to, but he's going to say it. Like I said, I appreciate that. Father said to him, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand. By the way, that's the same as a credit card. That's a premium, you know, um, I can't think of the credit cards anymore. It's the best one. Limitless spending. Ring of the father. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us, make, let us eat and be merry for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to be merry. Wow. Then we have the fourth class of sinner, the one that can't be saved. Because he, he already knows he thinks what the Father's heart is. He already is in superior position to the Father because when the Father deviates from what he thinks, he sits back and says, well, you shouldn't have been that way. 
There'll be a lot of people in hell who thought God should be differently than he is. It's a huge mistake. The older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and announced to summon one of his servants and began inquiring and saying about these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come home. The father has killed the fattened calf, and because he's received him back safe and sound, he became angry. Again, this whole thing is precipitated by this older son group called the Pharisees in the first verse of chapter, of chapter 15 saying, I can't believe he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. This is, this is the, point of the, whole, the point of the whole chapter is coming right here. Here it is. It is these sons who can't be saved because they do not think they need repentance. They think the father, look, look, listen, they think the father owes them salvation. Listen to what the son says. First of all, he says to the father, look. I don't think you say that to the father. For so many years I've served you and I've never neglected and commanded any of your commands and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he has devoured your wealth and harlots and you've killed the fatted calf. You owe me my status. That is an eternal mistake. We have a lot of people in hell thinking God owes them heaven. That's an eternal mistake. The father in this culture didn't owe the son anything. Now, I guess norms would be that you allowed your son, your, your, your son would be a part in your inheritance. They didn't have to be. You could write him out. No, you owe this to me because I'm as good as if you will, I'm as good as you are. I deserve all this stuff. Um, listen to me, boy. You're wrong on that. You better humble yourself. The one who holds the reins of all the stuff is the dad, and you're telling him, look. And I would say that's not very smart. Devoured your wealth with harlots. You've killed the fattened calf with him. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me. That's the Jew. They They knew. Don't, don't you know my heart? You've always been with me, but you don't know what I'm like? You read my scriptures, but you don't know what I'm like? You pray to me, but you don't know what I'm like? You don't know how I think? You don't know what my heart is? You've missed it. So we, we have people who, and, and it's not just Jews. It's Baptists and all, all other cultures. We think somehow, the uh, uh, Bible cultures, we think somehow because we have the scripture, somehow that, that makes us right with God. No, it doesn't. So how can the Pharisees, who could memorize most of the Bible and tell you the middle letter in the Bible in the Hebrew, and then when Jesus, the Son of God, shows up, not know who he is? Well, that would at least scare us a bit to say, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I am. And let me tell you something. You have every reason to be scared if you are not humble. Lack of humility leads to all kinds of ignorance. It just does. Humble yourself before the Lord. Could I be missing something? I think there's a good chance you have. I know I am. But my child, has always, has, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we, and here's what I would say is one of the most profound statements in the Bible, as far as our understanding of the heart of the Father. But we had to be merry and rejoice. I wasn't aware God had to do anything. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't see there's a, there's a, my wife makes a list for me. I try to follow. I did in this past Sunday night, and, and uh, she makes a list for me to go to the grocery store, and I came home without anything except for I just bought myself some food. Because <laughs> I was too tired. 
So I get made a list and I try to follow that list. And, and um, here, here we have, I, but I, I'm not aware of God having anyone who makes a list for him. Are you? I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. If there is any kind of list, it is because God has made it for himself. Can you agree with that? So one thing we can add to the list is that when a sinner repents, God has made it mandatory that he celebrate. That is mind-blowing to me. He has made it mandatory for himself that he makes merry over that. I don't find anywhere he does that for a sinner who doesn't repent. But I do find it here on three occasions. How much more in, in the presence of the angels will there be rejoicing when one sinner repents, he says about the coin. Much more in, the, in, in heaven will there be rejoicing over one sinner repents. And then we have here, uh, like I said, trumps all of them in my opinion. We had to be merry and rejoice. Don't you understand me, son? Don't you understand my heart? How, how could you miss who I really am? And he had, hadn't he? And was unwilling to come to grips with it. It's a shame. Your brother was dead and has become alive, was lost and has been found. That is the prime thing for our father. you got to understand it. What is God about today? Hunting for sinners, looking for them, longing for them, rejoicing over them when they repent. Loving it. Again, not because repentance accomplishes anything. A sinner cannot turn from his sin. He can just recognize it. He cannot stop sinning. I see people say, some people have problems with repose. You know, we shouldn't ever require a sinner to repent. I find Jesus and John the Baptist and, and all the way through the New Testament, them requiring sinners to repent. But, uh, but, uh, but a sinner can't change his spots any more than a leopard can. He can't stop sinning. That's not the repentance we're talking about. Now, saved sinners, we can require that. That there is a repentance that, that leads to righteous, that leads to a different way of life, but that comes to save sinners. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. I can say no to sin, so can you. And if you think you can't, you just listen to the, to, to the devil. He's just, he's just duping you. What, what he, what's going on in your life, you're allowing him to do. I'm not trying to throw a weight of load, you know, oh, Bill, I'm, you know, I'm already depressed about the way I'm living. Now you've told me I'm allowing it. Well, I'm not trying to make you bad on that. I'm just trying to give you some reality here. Sinners, listen, uh, save sinners. We don't have to be sinners. We don't have to be. It's a choice now. But a lost sinner, they've got no choice. That's who they are. That's their spots. They're pigs. They love the mud. They can't help it. They can't change it. All they can say is, I wished it was different. That's repentance for them. Huge difference. So we'll stop right there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great grace that has found us, that has taken our shame upon you, that has um, carried our iniquity, not, not caring what anyone thinks, not caring what the whole world thinks about you, but loving sinners. Thank you for your grace that opened our eyes to see that we were such, and then your grace that brought us uh, salvation. And we do pray for those that are on our hearts right now, and the names we lift up to you, Lord, right now, of people who we wish they would be different. And we're just asking God that you would grant them repentance and lead them to a knowledge of the truth and they may escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Thank you so much, God, that we have the privilege to say this, do this, 
Help us, God, to carry your name and the truth about you and ourselves. Everywhere we go, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.